1: talk about beer and this week beer merch and a whole lot more as we meet joe cook from beer fans joe says in his linkedin profile that starting things is his favorite hobby and having been involved in kegstar from the beginning then popularizing wine in cans and kegs at riot wine and now looking at a new way to think of merchandise at beer fans this is an interesting conversation about entrepreneurism generally and especially in the drink space It's also an interesting insight into an aspect of the brewing industry that I suspect that most of us take for granted, to the extent that we don't really see the full value of it, brewery merch. And that's something that Joe wants to change. I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Joe Cook, welcome to Beer is a Conversation.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Funnily enough, like, I, I wish I'd uh, hit record a little bit earlier because you were saying some very nice things about being a regular listener. But you've been a long time uh, get that I've wanted to have on the uh, on the show, so it's great to to have you here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, I do listen every week. Uh, it helps me keep my finger on the pulse, so to speak. Uh, and I enjoy the I enjoy the banter and the different the different subjects that you guys cover. And uh, it's good to have you back on uh, this side of the world.
1: Oh right, thank you. Yeah, well, we just recorded a podcast today, but let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. And as part of my research for this, and I don't—I mean, I I deliberately don't research these things too much because it is a conversation; it goes where it wants to go. But I always check out someone's uh, LinkedIn profile, and immediately I was struck by. Uh, your profile says Joe Cook starting things is my favorite hobby and uh, you know that's pretty much the theme that I wanted to talk to you about so tell me about you know starting things how did you you know what was the first thing that you started? Um, oh gosh I guess
0: I've always been a little bit of a, a hustler. Um, even like in my youth, trying to like scrounge around for an extra buck. Um, It might come from actually being a part of quite a big family. I'm the eldest of five. Um, So there was like a lot going on, a lot of um, mum and dad's income to spread around a lot of kids. So I always wanted to have the nice shiny things. So earning an extra buck was um, always a good incentive. But um, sort of in my professional life, I guess, I don't know. I've always been struck by... You know the the entrepreneurs of the world that you know the the ones that are promoted. I've always been a big Elon Musk fan and whatnot. I just like I like the idea of being um, a master of your own destiny. Uh, and in particular, um, I think uh, a thing that I focus on, and a thing that um, sort of grabs my attention, is things that haven't necessarily existed before, but are innovative solutions to like ongoing problems. And that's what I really like to sink my teeth into.
1: So what was the first, like when you were trying to earn a few extra bucks uh, as the eldest child, did you have a lawn mowing business or did you, you know, what was, what was the hustle when you were young? I remember
0: the most creative one. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the most lucrative or the, most, the one that lasted very long at all. But a friend of mine and I caught yabbies in the local creek and we bred them, and we sold them in little tiny fish tanks, uh, a pair of yabbies, and we got in the local newspaper um, for selling yabbies.
1: (laughs) When you said you bred, I thought you said you breaded them. I thought you had a little uh, yabby selling stall, but no, you you actually bred and sold
0: live yabbies. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what people did when they bought them, uh, if they they grew them to eat, but um, yeah, that was the most sort of creative, but In in university, I had a t-shirt company called New Drop Tees with uh, two mates. And that that business was focused on finding, you know, talent in the design space that wanted to create an apparel brand but but may not have had access to either manufacturing or distribution. So we were trying to uh, be the manufacturing and distribution arms for creatives. And so, you know, really focusing on what, people do best like a creative is good at being creative but they not, might not be good at you know accounting and manufacturing and logistics and bits and pieces um and You've so i've been reading my diary <laughs> um and so that that was a great hobby um hobby business um while at university uh and that one we we got brands into restart retail stores sort of nationally uh but we ended up winding up that business just based on other demands in our lives taking priorities and um The three mates sort of went different ways. We're still friends, but, um, um, you know, our careers took us in
1: different directions. It's one of the topics I look at very closely in the brewing industry. When you see so many foundation stories amongst breweries is a couple of mates over a beer decide to open a brewery um forgetting that, you know, these things, you know, they just a little bit like pets. You know, a business isn't quite forever, but you don't just stop doing it one day when you've got investments and if somebody wants to do something different, how do you get out? How did you handle um, you know, having a business with a mate and then having it successful and go in different directions? What was the pros? did you look at buying each other out or uh
0: not really. I guess um in this particular case it was a bit more organic. Um, like It was one of those things where we were finishing our like, undergrads and we, well, we either had to choose to go into corporate life and have a secure income or keep, um, I guess, gambling that uh, this business we were creating was going to generate enough um, income to sustain us. And, you know, a- as one person pulled out, the other two didn't want to pick up the load. So it sort of... Yeah, it sort of happened. It was it was a really positive conversation, frankly. Uh, we learn a lot from it. From Like if nothing else, we learned how to register businesses, deal with accountants, like have conversations with lawyers. And these are skills that you wouldn't necessarily learn or do over and over again. Um, so being able to, you know, even just get skill sets around, um, you know, Uh, finding the right person to talk to or be willing to ask for advice and being open to not having the answer to every question. These are like amazing life skills that um, I've been able to put into things that I've done since.
1: Looking back, you worked uh, for APN Outdoor and you're on their uh, uh, fast track Program. Yeah, um, tell me a little bit about that. So you know, obviously, even in your your, your very early professional life, uh, you know, you had an entrepreneurial bent in other businesses as well.
0: Yeah. Um, so APN, um, for those that don't know, um, now called Here There and Everywhere, I believe, but it um, was a old school media business, owned media assets like. Um, Newspapers, uh, billboard companies, bu- like bus shelter companies, uh, owned a fair bit of media in New Zealand as well uh, around radio, um, uh, yeah, uh, other outdoor media. Um, in that business, uh, they had a, a, a fast track program that was designed to put young people in leadership positions to help the digital transformation of that business. So they, they recognize that we, we deal in old world media assets. How do we protect these assets for the new digital disruption that's happening? Um, and that's when things like digital radio was being introduced, or there were just more and more uh, websites. This is when newspapers were going to um, digital formats and weren't even sure how to make money from it. Are there payment gateways? Is there advertising? there was It was during that whole time. And so, yeah, the theory was having some young people in sort of leadership roles would help, you know, set them up for success in the future. So a part of the um, this Fast Track program was pairing up um, these young potential leaders with C-level staff and getting um, us to do different projects in these different media companies. And uh, often, and like for my two and a half year stint in this program, uh, was how can you find revenue in our existing assets so essentially trying to find non-traditional revenue Um, and the way we did that was like things that are like quite common these days Um, if you think about a new newspaper business you can actually go onto that website and you can buy the photos from that um, that website, say so you were in the newspaper and you wanted to get the photo, um, or uh, it sort of operates like an iStock photo, if you like, where you could use stock images mm. and have royalty free images or buy the royalty for them. Um, so that was a way to create revenue where you know, the photographers were ta- already taking the photos. Uh, so we just turned turn that into cash. Another one was in radio for example where uh, a lot of regional radio stations were losing funding uh, and so they didn't have enough money to put people uh, on air, Um, they didn't have enough money to keep the the sort of them broadcasting. Uh, So I did this initiative where we repackaged existing sort of metro um, afternoon and morning programs, um, took out all the regionality aspects of it so if it was sort of a Perth-based program. We took all the mm-hmm. Perth references out of it and then we sold those as packages into the regional radio stations so they could uh, air those and not have any dead air or not just be playing the same music over and over again. I did other things in that um, position in Fast Track as well. Went over to New Zealand, lived there for six months, which was amazing. I worked with their equivalent of like Scoop On or Groupon, like the group buying mm-hmm. um, deals that were quite yep. popular a while ago, 10 years ago. Uh but we turned their data into cash and their data into um, sales insights as well. So it was really good. Um, it, this, this program, um, yeah, sort of really set me up actually because having access to all these C-level staff, I wouldn't have otherwise got that um, in sort of a traditional career. Um, and yeah, all these, these, these men and women with extraordinary experience, just um, door always open sort of policy uh, was amazing.
1: Just a, a complete rabbit hole. Whatever happened to those group buying, scoop on Groupon-type uh, deals?
0: I think these days they all sold off for their databases. Uh, they're, they're not so popular anymore. Uh, they've certainly had to iterate if they, if they still exist. I, I don't buy from them personally, so I, I couldn't speak to if yeah. they still exist or not. But they were very popular at the time. I don't think they were necessarily... Um, very good for the businesses that they sold deals for. There was a lot of, um, I don't know, there was a lot of deals that probably didn't have the margin to sustain the businesses that they were selling. So they'd have a high influx of customers, uh, have to fulfill their goods and services. uh, And they had uh, deteriorated their margin so much that it, it wasn't as helpful. And then I think, I don't know, this would be presuming a little bit, but uh, the people that uh, bought on those sites weren't necessarily going to be repeat customers. They were going to look for the next deal of the similar product uh, and buy from that as opposed to um, visit that location or store or service again.
1: Funnily enough, that's why I asked. That's exactly the sort of, um, you know, aha moment because I'd never actually thought through. I'd noticed that those things weren't around, but I'd never stopped to think why. So there we go. There's a, a little bit of learning for all of us. Now, but what brought you to the drinks industry then? Because you've, you've had, a, you know, a well not a lengthy um in terms of years but you've had a very uh um impactful um you know career in the in in the beer and the uh, wine industry
0: yeah so i guess it's coming up to 10 years now the the way i got in was um i met adam trip smith um he's sort of a serial entrepreneur in um the beverage space as well having started a brewery a couple of care companies more breweries. I don't know. He's got his fingers and pies, that man. Uh, but he, at the time him and I met, he was also working for, um, APN, the company I did the fast track program with. Uh, he was in the MA team and him and I just sort of hit it off. Uh, both Adelaide boys, uh, now living in Sydney. It was like, it was, it was cool. And I, I knew his, um, his beer brand. And funnily enough, when I was, um, one of the very first things I did just before the um, fast track program was actually selling some outdoor space on billboards and bus shelters and trams and whatnot. And i I kept calling him, I'd got his number and I was calling him to put, uh, uh mv beer on um on billboards because i i'd seen it everywhere in bars and he he kept saying things like i already know the company i I, i'm not gonna do it because he had uh, some affiliation with (laughs) apn beforehand so it, it sort of came full circle from me cold calling him to us being mates and when i was stepping away from uh media and trying to figure out what to do next he essentially pitched kegstar to me he was like i've I bought these kegs. I've got this idea. Sort of a similar business model exists in the States, but I think we can do it better with some technology. Um, what do you think? And I was, I think I was 26 or 27. I was like, oh, work in beer? That sounds like the dream job. Uh, so I sort of jumped in and uh, yeah, he sort of set the challenge uh, make it big enough for me to quit my job. And so I was the first guy at Kegstar. Or, one desk in a small office cubicle, and
1: uh, yeah, just got started from there. I guess it's a little bit difficult to speak too much about businesses that you've been in, but what, what did you learn about the drinks industry, about the beer industry particularly, through developing and pioneering that keg model in, in, in Australia?
0: So I guess um, one of the things that I love most about, in particular, the the beer side of the beer, beverage industry is the people. And I, I know that I probably sound like a broken record, but having come from media uh, after Kegstar, I did a winery, and there's a reason I'm back in beer again. And um, it's certainly like the people. It's it's odd, like it really is. Um, the the people in the beer industry, as I see it at least, are. Uh, pretty like very collaborative. Um, I didn't find the same in wine, uh, for instance, it was more competitive and look, we're all competitors um, in the, particularly in the craft space, but um, you know, everyone seems to be looking out for each other. Everyone seems to know each other. Um, yeah, I just, I've, the, the people and culture is is huge. And I think, you know, it's a lot of why people choose the jobs they choose these days is the people and culture. And I think it speaks volumes for like our part of the industry. Outside of that, I think um, I was very surprised about how much innovation there is in beer, uh, not only from like beer styles, but there's always new technology coming in. Um, I know like I've heard a bit of what you were doing overseas and talking about like carbon capture and like there's many pasteurizers mm-hmm. coming on, onto the market. Um, and, uh, you know, the... Particularly the craft space is like an innovation hub, right? And, uh, we're, we're early adopters in this space. So, um, that really appealed to me, particularly someone who likes to start things. Um, that, you know, I found a whole bunch of early adopters that really wanted to, you know, get an edge. Uh, they were open to new concepts and uh, that's a, it's a fun space to play in.
1: So did you, I'm trying to think uh, back my own history. Did you move on from Kegstar before the sale or did you move on after the sale to uh, Brambles and Microstar?
0: Uh, Yep. So at the time uh, Kegstar had sold to Brambles, I was still working there. I worked there for a year or so um, with uh, Brambles, which was great. Um, They it, it exposed me to a, a whole new part of the world, um, which was like really interesting. Um, they, they have offices in a lot of locations uh, and, you know, Kegstar and, and, and Convoy are a big like, asset pooling companies and that's essentially what Brambles are. Um, so understanding how they do it at like such global scale was really, really interesting. Um, and once again, got to be exposed to some, you know, re- like C-level staff, of a big listed company um it, i mean <laughs> thinking back to even when uh, brambles first invested into kegstar it was just ats and i going up this massive elevator in this huge skyscraper i had a kegstar hat on a hat on and a keg under my arm and we were going to pitch to this sort of ceo cfo MA guy of this huge listed company and we yeah we just went in there with like merch like bar blades and bits and and pitch the dream of what kegstar is and it just seemed totally absurd but it all all came came to fruition
1: again like i'm, I'm just trying to pick because uh, there, there is a very casual element to the brewing industry where brow um and uh, drink tech aside where you've got all of the germans in suits but um <laughs> you know just about every other part of the brewing industry is very casual and lots of trucker caps and uh you know beer t-shirts um what was it like? You know, what was that part of the appeal, or was that part of the sales pitch, showing them that side of the business? Or, you know, I still don't, can't see myself doing anything other than rocking up in a suit and trying to play their game. Well, we certainly didn't play their game. Um, I think,
0: you know. One of the big incentives for uh, Brambles to invest initially in Kegstar was um, its technology around like tracking and tracing kegs. Cause um, Brambles are the owner of Chet Pallets that the whole world sort of moves on. Um, and they, they have a pretty old and antiquated system to track um, pallets. Uh, it's, it's a bit of an honesty system, really. And I don't think anyone really, really knows how many pallets they've used or. or or how many are out there so uh for them that was the initial um pitch and because it was like new technology and you have this sort of you silicon valley sort of aura around you because you're like technology but in assets like it didn't really matter that we rocked up in t-shirt and jeans uh it sort of fit the whole pitch uh and you know, we had, the, we had the CEO and CFO at our office in Paddington playing table tennis. Um, in fact, uh, I beat the CEO in table tennis, which was probably a big career-limiting move.
1: I was going to say, <laughs> never a good move.
0: <laughs> uh, but, no, I think they, they liked that we were sort of the disruptors that we were bringing new technology. And, well, certainly in the early days when I was around.
1: So when you moved on, you, you went from kegs and beer to wine what was the insight because it and launched the first wine in cans company in in australia is is my recollection
0: yeah so we were the only winery so it was called riot wine co we're the only winery in australia that exclusively packaged its product in kegs and cans that business came out of the fact that when actually kegstar was trying to launch in the us it's a really big market and we were trying to find a bit of a, a niche to launch into, like either an anchor customer or like, like just trying to figure out how we could get in. And there was like wine on tap was becoming increasingly popular, particularly um, out of like uh, Sonoma and uh, Napa, um, like mm-hmm. the whole California, uh, Californian space. And so it actually made us feel a bit guilty. We are like, oh, are we not facilitating this niche in Australia? Have we been focusing too much on just beer? So we came back and uh, had a look to see if there was that space here. It wasn't. Uh, and so when my time was sort of wrapping up at Kegstar, um, yeah, we like, had a discussion about it and thought about, well, if no one's doing it here, generally things that are popular in the States tend to get popular here a few years later. How about we be the first people to to make it happen? Mm-hmm. We got access to kegs, and I, I I was um at the time procuring all the kegs for Kegstar. So I'd been to all the keg factories around the world. I'd uh, I knew a lot about kegs. I know a lot about kegs, um, and so I was in a, a good position uh to to think about it. And so paired up with a um. A winemaker that I met through a friend, and um, we set about making it happen and launched with rosé in a keg.
1: Did you use Kegstar kegs, or did you buy your own kegs?
0: No, of course, Kegstar kegs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was okay. So I bled Kegstar at that stage.
1: As an outsider to the wine industry, I watched as tradition fought against innovation with the uh, your screw cap, you know, from cork, despite. So much, uh, you know, so many benefits to the screw cap over cork um, for, for, for the consumer experience in so many ways, but that tradition of pulling out a cork and the theatre of the service at the table, um, mitigating against something that was so positive to, to, to wine and also to the business of selling wine. What was it like trying to get wine on tap? Um, because there's a huge consumer shift in sentiment um to 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 get there yeah
0: uh, look that's a big question um it's like there's a lot of aspects right like and first and foremost you have this big education hurdle that you need to overcome um Mm. like is the wine fizzy because it's coming out of a beer, beer keg you know like that's that's what everyone would ask um Yes. Well, is it?
1: I mean, again, like I've had uh, carbonate. I've had water that's been pushed through that has a light fizziness. So, what what's the, the, the challenge there?
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, well, we had no carbonation in the wine, obviously, and in the headspace of the keg and can, for that matter, we backfill with nitrogen, which is an inert gas, which means that it, it yeah. doesn't um, it doesn't uh, seep into the liquid. Uh, so, it was a completely um, still product when it came out of tap. Uh, we did eventually iterate and managed to do sparkling wine on tap, uh, which is the most wasted wine um, in the market. If you think about mm. um, having to pop a bottle and it losing its carbonation over the course of the day, uh, if one person bought a mimosa or a, or a glass of bubblies, then you've just wasted that whole bottle. So uh, in that sense, um, yeah, bubbles on tap made a lot of sense, um, both the margin environmentally and all of those reasons Mm. but in terms of like um you know consumer adoption there was there's a lot of pushback and it was really hard um so what we did in the first instance was talk to the uh venue about all the benefits of it um like glass was a big problem fridge spaces uh was a big problem um you know the uh inefficiency of those fridges you know the disposal of the glass bottles all this sort of stuff like um converting to tap solved a lot of problems for the venue so if the venue got on board and the staff got on board then they would sell that through to the consumer the consumer market was just too big for us to tackle like we couldn't be the only people doing and educating all of australia that wine on tap is is a good wine Uh, so uh, we really had to rely on the venues and incentivize the venues to um, help push our product, and you know one of the one of the um, most amazing things that happened to us in that business was uh, Maryvale came, like just gave us a call out of the blue and said we've done a blind sort of rosé wine tasting and your wine has won we want to put you on tap across our venues, um, <laughs> which was just sort of phenomenal. We didn't even know that we were a part of any sort of blind tasting. We didn't know they had an interest in wine on tap. Um, they literally gave us a cold call said how much does it cost call cool. we want to roll it out across our venues and their motivation mm. on top of all the sustainability and efficiency um, benefits was customer service so they didn't like that you know when someone orders a wine the first thing the person does behind a bar is turn their back to the customer because they've got to bend over and get it out of the fridge out the back mm. so it was just not a a friendly customer conversation so they much preferred that they could be looking at the customer they could pour it on tap it's got all the cheat notes on the back of the deck so they could be talking about Mm. where it's from its tasting notes etc and then give it straight to the customer and the speed of service was significantly increased so and that worked really um well across their venues to the point that they we ended up collaborating with them on a spritz product and rolled that out um in their venues as well so yeah, that was amazing. You couldn't have a bigger and better advocate than the Maryvale Group. That's for sure.
1: And I guess that it would expose people en masse to it, given the size of their venues, rather than getting, you know, small bars one at a time. The Maryvale venues, if you're across there, that's a huge audience that is suddenly being introduced to the idea of it and overcoming their fears that how it may taste.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And like you, t- you spoke earlier about the, I guess, theatre and the the story of receiving a, a wine in a bottle. Uh, we actually did like one liter crafts. Uh, we always said that seven hundred fifty mils was, um, you know, too much for one glass, but not enough for a good time. Uh, so <laughs> having a liter craft was our way of still having the the story and the drama and the 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 being able to pour it out of a, a bottle uh but it was still more efficient um for a venue
1: actually on on this week's podcast uh that i'm not sure how this conversation will sync with um today's radio brewers use week but we talk about the slimline cans um you know we've recently seen breweries putting fruity beers in slimline cans and that is a signal to the consumer um, about the product. You're not going to get a VB in a slimline can because, my, to my way of thinking, it signals you know some of the characters of a seltzer or a of, of some of the healthier drinks. Um, that the consumer takes the qualities of other products that's had in a slimline can from the the, the, the package size for the, the the product that it's looking at. Um, the, the consuming then. Does wine on tap, because beer is often perceived as more of a um, you know daily beverage and a less special beverage than wine for a whole range of reasons, but having it come on tap is, is integral to beer supply, was there a, a, a cheapening of the perception of the wine having it served that way?
0: I think in some cases, yes. Uh, but if you use Maryvale as an example, they're a premium venue and they certainly charge a premium price for it. Uh, so I think that sort of informed people's opinion. Um, cans, on the other hand, cans are super challenging. Like what you might not know about um, wine in a can is it's patented. There's seven patents on wine in a can preventing other wineries from, um, like including Riot, um, from putting wine in a can. So our first hurdle to overcome to even put wine in a can was to work out how we could operate outside of the, the seven patents, which sort of seems ridiculous. You can't imagine a brewery patenting, putting beer in a can.
1: What's the technology or the innovation that it had to be patented for wine in a can?
0: So there's a there's a few. Um so one was uh, in relation to the particular lining of a can. So those that know a lot about cans um will know this already, but it's sort of not liquid on aluminium. There's actually sort of a silica mm. lining that's on the inside of a can. Yeah. Um uh, sort of twenty years ago, uh the high acidity and alcohol level in wine was too great for that that um coating. So wow. it would eat through it'd rust the cans. You couldn't put wine in a can these days that technology is significantly improved so it doesn't matter if it's a coca-cola can or a beer can or whatever um they could all have wine in it so there's a company that has a particular lining that it is the only lining for wine in a can we we found that not to be the case um through our testing um there's uh, a painting on the specific pressure in the can when it has wine in it so we had to operate outside of the pressure of the can which is really challenging particularly on a still beverage because it's the actual the carbonation in um, the liquid that gives the can rigidity Mm. tongue twister so uh, when we were putting wine in a can we had to put um, a drop of liquid nitrogen in to fill in the head gap and also make sure that that can wasn't impacting the patent around the pressure um so there was a lot of um sort of very specific um oh there's even one around the 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 recipe that you're allowed to use in one in a can so um yeah anyway it was it was a pain for a long time but we we overcame and were very confident we operated outside of the restrictions um and, and never got approached that um we were impeding any of those which was great
1: yeah that, that surprises me i'd never realized that there was a that involved in it as you said it's um, putting beer in a can maybe it's just because no one thought to do it at the beginning
0: i think it was a very generous patent i think if it was submitted these days it probably wouldn't get through but um it was 23 years ago now so um right yeah i guess no one was doing it so it was niche enough uh, and obscure enough that they probably didn't thought thaw- it was probably when uh, wine still had corks in them to be fair
1: It was obviously a success because you were successful in selling. (laughs) Um, Is that part of starting a business? You know, someone who, you know, starting things, it goes without saying that things that you start, you'll um, look at moving on and moving on to the next thing to start? Or what's your approach when you start a business?
0: Um, Do I start with the intention of selling something? Hmm. Not necessarily, but I'm definitely always open to it. I think... um, my view sort of is, is if you have shareholders in your business, there needs to be some sort of like liquidity. And in the case of um, Kegstar and Riot, there was like shareholders. Um, so not only like founders, but um, like um, high net worth that had put money in. And the the most, I guess, obvious way to get, for them to get a return on their investment um, was for us to sell. Uh, otherwise, they would have to stay in the long term for us to even get big enough for dividends and, uh, all all sorts of different options. Um, I think, um, if your like innovation is scalable, uh, has like huge potential to potential to scale, uh, and there's an appetite that for that in the market, I think naturally buyers will come out and find you. And that was the case for Riot in the sense that, um, We weren't looking to sell right. It was still really, really early. We were sort of not even three years in when the conversation sort of started and um, CUB came to us and said, is there some way we can do a partnership? Um, And that was sort of how the conversation started and how the conversation ended nine months later was they had bought us. Uh, They were sort of running a wine in can um, project internally and I guess you know from our perspective there was an opportunity to either compete with the biggest brewery (laughs) in the country who were the previous owners of treasury wine so they probably had a lot of skills in that business or we could partner with them and see where we could take right so we certainly didn't have the um you know the sale moment where we all you know bought new houses and ferraris and yachts and retired on our private islands uh we had a very humble sort of um I would call it more of a partnership uh where they sort of extinguished their existing project and then right became that and it was a big short it was a sort yep. of a three year shortcut for them um to you know have an established brand have wines uh have distribution and we could plug that into their network and and grow up very quickly uh and look that's their big competitive advantage right is their access to taps and venues and mm. and their distribution network uh, would do I build things to to sell? I, I'm very open to it, and I think um I think everybody is. I think those that have said they'll never sell have been bitten in the past. Uh, and uh, I'd be uh, yeah, i I'd I'd, I'd I'd certainly be open to it. It's nice to be rewarded for your hard work, and even if you don't yeah. make a lot of money out of it, the validation that it was something that um you know you put blood, sweat, and tears into, and um. It's, it's turned out to be something that someone's seen value in and wants to invest in is hugely gratifying.
1: All of this brings us to your latest business that you've started, which is founder and general manager of Beer Fans. First of all, tell us uh, what Beer Fans is, and uh, we, we can go a little bit into, into the insights that developed it.
0: Sure. Well, in, in its simplest terms, Beer Fans is a marketplace exclusively for beer branded merch. Uh, So what that means in practice is you can go to beerfans.com.au and buy merch across a whole range of different beer brands. Uh, All in one transaction, all drop shipped directly from the breweries uh, and they'll arrive directly at your house just like any other e-commerce purchase. Um, I guess that's the most obvious customer facing part of the business. On the other side of um, sort of the business, I guess, the b2b side is uh we're trying to build brands beyond beer so expose beer brands to people that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to uh there's a lot particularly spoken about in this podcast actually how you know the size of pie isn't necessarily growing and beer brands are often just selling to their instagram followers and their existing um subscribers uh the beauty of, you know, a marketplace is there's some serendipity, right? Like if you're um, pulled into the marketplace for a brand that you like, then and then are shown like brands, um, you're likely to discover something you didn't know existed. So we don't compete in that sense directly with a, uh, a beer brand in terms of their e-commerce platform or over the bar. Their existing customers know where to find them. Uh, we're just introducing them to new fans, and you know, the lifetime value of a new fan is really lucrative to a beer brand. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to facilitate that for beer brands.
1: When you put it that way, it sounds a little bit like going back to your APN where you've got newspapers that are taking photographs and trying to unlock the value of that photograph. Breweries see themselves as making beer, but the value of the brand carries into other products as well, whether it's somebody who wants to wear a T-shirt saying that they drink that beer is is that the same sort of insight similar like you've touched on something like that that i like talking about a fair bit
0: um when when i speak to these beer brands is that like if you think about it the biggest brewers they have the most expertise around brewing the most advanced technology and a lot of skills if they wanted to rip off your beer they could do it pretty quickly but what they can't rip off is your brand your ethos what you stand for and a lot of that is why a consumer will fall in love with your brand yes ultimately the beer's got to taste great and that's a given but like people will align with your you know sustainability efforts or what you stand for I like to say we're we're part of the give-a-shit generation right like people actually care about where they're spending money. They're happy to pay a premium on something that's doing something good. People are happy to spend something uh, money on stuff that is good for them. Um, so that's a big part of why your consumers love your, your beer is because of your brand. And it's something that the big, the big guys can't necessarily rip off. So the average like consumer, not us in the industry, um, probably don't think about beer until sort of later in the afternoon, later in the week. But if they have your merchandise, say a t-shirt hanging in the wardrobe, they're flicking through their clothes at 7am to get dressed before they're working from home or going about their day. They see your brand, they start thinking about your brand first thing in the morning and then act as a a billboard for the rest of the day for your brand. And nothing says five-star review as someone wearing a t-shirt of a particular brand they like. And so that's why I think merchandise is something that like for the most part, um, we think about as gift with purchase or something that we give away, or yeah, something that's probably not valued as much as um, uh, as the beer. Yet yeah, it represents your brand, which is your huge competitive advantage um, above, you know, the big guys.
1: Do you have any data about what percentage? Because I know that you looked at the states, um, for example. Do you have any information about what percentage of taproom sales? merch makes for uh you know craft small craft breweries in 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 the us no i don't have the us data for
0: the okay for a matter of fact i don't have the australian data either so for the it's it's interesting when you speak to brands uh, around merchandise how they see its value some see its value as as long as it's break even i'm happy so i give away a certain amount i sell a certain amount like it's getting my brand out there. I'm really happy. Then you have some other brands, perhaps more sophisticated brands that are like, well, like we, this is a significant revenue line. Like let's make it cool. Let's make it something that people want to wear more, um, and let's get our brand out there further. Um, so there's there's a variety of, of schools of thought, I guess, um, across brands. Um, but but what we do is we make it super super simple. Um, We've got an API that plugs into the existing e-commerce platform that a beer brand is using and we replicate the um, products on beerfans.com.au uh, and it pulls through, you know, the, the imagery. It's really important that we match how that brand wants to be represented um, and its descriptions. Um, and most importantly, um, we pull from the same inventory numbers so we don't um, sell stuff that doesn't exist. Um, we have a shared customer with the beer brand, so we would hate for a a bad customer experience.
1: So what do you then offer a a brewery that, you know, has a rack of t-shirts in, in in their tap room to get capture the point of sale or, you know, captures people when they're, they're interested because if you know, Matt's beer brand, um, is listed on, uh, beer fans, it's, it's going to be amongst a clutter of other brands. What, what is the offer to, to, to breweries in that case?
0: Well, we're essentially the first wholesaler of beer merch, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, beer, the beer isn't just sold in the tap room of a brewery. It's not just sold at like one retailer. It's sold in as many independents and ideally the nationals, right? To get the the most broad distribution. The the same school of thought should be applied um, to your merchandise because it's getting your brand out there further. If uh, Rowling's called cool, the the can the mini billboard, then the um, the t-shirts the medium billboard. Before you actually get onto billboards like Mount Conifer <laughs> and uh, Balter, so thank you
1: for the plug for our sponsors. I'll be very happy.
0: <laughs> um, so yeah, get, getting your brand out there should be something that's like paramount to like growth. And uh, you know, brands are already doing it across trying to get like media with either through you guys and other um, publications or trying to get earned media by sending out press releases, um, it's free to be on beer fans, right? So we can feature your products for free. We take a success fee when we sell something. uh, So we're incentivized to grow your brand. So I think it's a great partnership.
1: I'm really interested in coming back to this, because I'd never thought of uh, merch that way. I'd always seen it as the stuff that gets given out at, you know, four plus one um, style deals, or at the you know the bottle shop to stand out and get people where you get a free bar blade if you buy a carton, kind of thing, or a T-shirt um, because that then has the ongoing promotional value. But when you look at craft beer, particularly how embedded it is in consumer psyche, and then brands um, really have their own personalities these days, um, and it, 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 be, it does become a badge to say that, you know, in, in, in my neck of the woods, I'm a Black Hops drinker or a Your Mate's drinker because it's something about that brand that resonates with you that the brand actually has a value that you can unlock through them through the merch over and beyond just the promotional value of having someone wear it. Totally. <laughs> but it, it, is, is that part of the pitch? Like, are, are you trying to get more breweries looking seriously at their merch or is beer fans just about selling the merch that they have?
0: No, that's a good question. So there's not a lot of sophistication that goes into um, how and when people uh, order or a lot of brands order merch at the moment. So being able to create some tools to make that super simple and some recommendations based on the data that we see over time will be really useful to beer brands. So You know, as simply as thinking about seasonality and when you should buy things, um, like people are buying hoodies for the first time at Easter before sort of the Easter holidays. Um, They're not necessarily like they they will have the jumpers and the, the beanies and the winter wear that they want by July. So you shouldn't be having hoodies arrive in July. Right. People have their winter wardrobe and the same goes for summer. Like people are starting to think about that as soon as spring hits, like it's September when we're recording this, people are already buying t-shirts and shorts and that's when your first drop should hit, not in December when you're competing with Christmas dollars and a vacation spend and all that sort of stuff. So, um, I think there's, you know, like even just 10% more of sophistication that could go into it. That would dramatically change Um, the success of you know selling merch and building brand through merch um in a lot of brands and you know we don't have all the tools yet to distribute but it's certainly something that we're working on um, to be able to go look are you a small medium or high spender of merch um here's a sort of annual merch plan that you can adjust to to suit yourself and um yeah follow this it'll tell you when to order merch to get it at the right time when to drop it and um the amount of people that tell me that merch doesn't expire. I'm like, well, like, sure, it's not a consumable, but it does expire. Otherwise, there wouldn't be new fashion each season, you know? Yep. Like, if you've got the same thing on the shelf for a year, two years, three years, it's not new. It's not new use news. People have seen that over and over again. It's going to be really tough to sell, and it's not often that like in in our world beer brands think about going oh like we need a pricing strategy just like we do for our beer we need to sell at full price for two or three months have a sale period and a final clearance so we can recuperate our costs and reinvest in our merch um, to help build our brand down the track Um, and those simple um, things that like you know people think about for their beer all the time um, that aren't applied to merch could dramatically change the success.
1: Are there any key trends? You, you, you talked about the fashion, but are there any key trends in, you know, truckers caps are, you know, very much wrapped up in craft beer, for example. But is that something that is starting to wane um you know for example are there you know bar blades are they still relevant in, in in a world of cans
0: well yeah i think the bar blade answer is probably a little bit obvious but uh in terms of the data that we see
1: that's the only piece of merch that we've got
0: well maybe we'll be able to help you with that but um <laughs> yeah in terms of what we see in the data look our, our we still have um what i'll describe as probably a small data set Uh, and i look forward to um it getting bigger so we can pull a lot of insights out there's some like obvious trends that we see already um you know black t-shirts are really popular um but you can't have all black t-shirts there's you know truck hats have been replaced with uh corduroy hats um there's so there's a few little trends that are happening um but it, it it really depends like how you look at your merch. Is it a promotional item or is it an apparel item? And you can tell which brands look at it with which lens. So is it a say gift with purchase, minimum unit cost, uh, as cheap as I can get it, or is it something that I want someone to wear all summer or winter um, and wear over and over again?
1: I know that this is a hard one um, for, for you to answer, because um, no one wants to identify their favourite client or they you know, choose their favourite child. But who who do you identify in Australia or you know maybe outside of our market to uh, not a, to avoid offending anybody um, who, who does merch really well? Like who 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 do you see as a, like an you know a, a peer for people to, to look at?
0: A better way to think about it might be, um, like, that would be most useful for a beer brand is to find something, someone that they align with in, say, the active wear space, or like just another um, a, another category uh, that has similar ethos. Like, if it's, you know, an outdoorsy brand, like if it's like, say, an example would be Catman Do or North Face mm. and Capital brewery looking at what their trends are and what they're doing and what their market's doing because capital breweries is outdoorsy um you know um rugged up sort of brand in all their um, merchandising um and seeing what they do and applying a bit of you know their learnings into what that brand's doing um you you know the important thing about new um ideas is they don't have to be new ideas they don't have to be ideas that no one's ever thought of before most often uh something that someone's already doing is the best idea uh so it's worth replicating
1: okay so so i can't draw you in on saying someone who you admire in terms of their merch
0: i think there's plenty of brands in our market that are doing great merch and if you want to check out what they are you can go <laughs> on to beerfans.com.au <laughs> okay
1: fair enough well i was actually going to call because a couple of the themes that you've um talked to about the seasonality and things in you know I've it's actually made a few things make sense about bolter which you know i've always looked at their design they've always had a great aesthetic for the whole company um you know as you'd expect with sterling involved but you know once i sort of uh, asked i'd seen a shirt and i said so do you still have any of those shirts and they said oh no that was like our shirt two years ago and i thought but it's a great shirt why wouldn't you still have it and clearly that's something that they're um doing that they're making it a fashionable thing and moving out and then moving to the next one
0: yeah but don't worry fashion is cyclical so it'll come back around
1: Uh, my my wardrobe will hopefully come back one day then (laughs) do you think it is a significant market for for breweries you know should breweries i mean this is a loaded question because i know you're going to say yes but uh it's more (laughs) (laughs) why should they uh take their 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 merch lines more seriously you know when, when when they're struggling. Yeah, you know, is is it just enough to get a black t shirt and slap their logo on the left chest pocket? I think
0: um, you probably shouldn't do anything without putting a bit of like thought into it, right? Like uh, having something for the sake of having something isn't probably productive. But to give you an idea how important the rest of the market sees merch, is that Beer Fans has uh, is running a trial with EDG putting merch into stores. So Beer Fans is the exclusive beer branded merch supplier to EDG. So we've got a store in, uh, a BWS store in uh, Mount Hawthorne East in Perth. That's one of their new concept stores. And there's a merch section. And each month we're um, putting a new brand's merch in that section. So we've got Beer Farm going in, Gage Roads and uh, CB Co. Uh, mm-hmm. And for a month they'll have their merch in that store and it's completely risk-free. So we buy the merch at a wholesale price. Uh, we do all the things that are necessary for it to be able to be consumed by the the EDG network and we get it in store and uh, merchandised and everything in store. And it sits as a complement to their beer in store. Um, and so, that was the conversation that came out of you know me and Billy Ryan having uh, a beer at Gabs, and him saying that you know EDG has been looking at merch for a long time, but because they have such a big business and some really structured systems, they couldn't go around to every single brewery and go, how can we support you by like buying merch and putting it in our stores? They needed someone like me to be able to aggregate all these brands and put them in store. So where you know, it's super expensive to get a job lot or advertising or anything in a Dan's or BWS, as like a lot of brands already know. Um, this completely flips it on its head where we're buying everything off you. There's no risk, we'll put it in store and it will complement your beer. And it's pretty unlikely that someone's gonna buy like your t-shirt without buying a case of beer um, in the store. So yep. I, think, I think that speaks volumes to how seriously the rest of the mark, market are thinking about merch.
1: Well, so obviously early days for for beer fans, but uh, we'll we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes to uh, let everyone check it out. But I think this is definitely one that I'll be uh, wanting to come back and follow up with you to see how it uh, how it all unfolds. Particularly that Dan Murphy's trial, they uh, are, are huge players in the industry, so you know it's, it's interesting that they're looking at another form of retail.
0: Yeah, that's right. They've got huge network and great customers, so why wouldn't they want to service their customers better and they're going to help build brands, via merch. So we're happy to facilitate it. It's great. Exactly.
1: Well, Joe Cook, thank you for this comment. Like I've, yeah, as I said, I use this um, conversation as my own uh, business mentoring service, free of charge. So uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> providing such insights into uh, entrepreneurship in uh, in business generally, but especially in the brewing industry.
0: Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's very flattering to be included on the podcast that I listen to every week. So I'm humbled and uh, yeah, this, this is wonderful. So hopefully it was useful. Thank you very much. Cheers, mate.
1: And that was Joe Cook. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search for Radio Brews News in Facebook and use the password Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, or emailing us at producer at to share your thoughts. And of course, you'll find links to all of those in the show notes.